There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, Texas, which is home base for me. If you've been tuning in for a while, you know this program is all about helping people create more meaningful and productive personal and work lives and equipping leaders inside organizations to, to cultivate meaning and purpose that elicits passion, inspired contribution, innovation, and persevering performance. I talk with my guests to draw on their experience and expertise and share my own consulting, speaking, and developing workforces across the globe. Every week in these conversations, I hope you walk away with something you can immediately put to use in your life and that you come alive with the possibility of living with passion, working on purpose, and are inspired to discover for yourself just how big and fulfilling your life, work, and leadership can be. And if you do catch fire from anything you hear, reach out and tell me about it. Email me at elise at elisecortez.com or use the contact me feature on my website to message me and tell me how I can help. Whether you want to join the distribution list to stay informed of these radio show topics, you want want to see about joining a Catch Fire online inspiration, accountability, or mastermind community, you want information on my purpose-driven leadership programs for individuals or companies, or you want to see about me speaking for you at your company or a conference. Either way, I'm glad we're connected, and thanks for listening. Now, on to this week's program. With us today is Dr. Trillian Small. She's the CEO of Attachment Leadership, a counseling, consulting, and coaching company providing customized wellness and leadership development programs, emotional intelligence corporate training, and youth development curriculum. She is also the founder of Prepare Academy, which has a primary initiative focus of mental health and restorative juvenile justice. She is the author of five books as well and joins today from Dallas, Texas. Dr. Dr. Small, welcome to Working on Purpose. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm so excited about this conversation. I can hardly stand it. And first, let me thank our mutual friend, Henda Salmeron, for bringing us together. Thank you, Henda. Yes. Out in the community. And when she heard you talk, she said, you must talk with my friend, Elise Cortez. And I'm so glad she sent you to me. So, <laughs> so I'm so grateful. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, you are up to so many great things. I'm so impressed. And we'll talk about a, at least a few of them on this program. But... One of the things when I think about you that I would narrow down and boil down as a core focus is you just seem to have this urgent desire to change the heart and mind of people in some positive way. So I want to understand where did this fire come from and why are you so riveted on helping people across the world solve this problem? Honestly, uh, my, my passion for this whole mission of helping transform people's hearts and transforming their minds actually came from my own personal struggles. And so if I was to say, uh, my, my purpose actually has been fueled by my pain. And so um, I was raised in a domestic violent household. And so I witnessed, I witnessed pain growing up. Um, and then I transferred that, that, that experience that I had as a child. And it really affected the way that I felt about myself and it affected the way that I, I felt about other people, specifically men. And as I grew older, although I left that traumatic experience as a child, that pain never left me. I carried it with me in my heart and in my mind. And so I wrestled with PTSD and I struggle with anxiety and I struggle with depression. And of course, I am in the mental health arena and, and partly so the reason why I really got into this field, yes, because I enjoy helping people. 
Um, but I also was trying to figure out what in the world is wrong with me? Honestly, it was, what is your problem? Why are your emotions all over the place? You need to figure this out. And so I did. And of course, I haven't mastered it all. Yes, I do have a doctorate, but I do believe in continuing to grow. And I discovered that I find the greatest satisfaction when I can turn back around and look at my clients or look at my students or just look at my friends and family and say, hey, guys, I found a solution to this, or hey, this worked for me, and I struggle with the exact same thing that you struggle with. Um, and so for me, that, that's that's where my passion came from. I said I want to help people change their hearts and change their minds. And, and the reason I believe, uh, or the reason why I have such a great a passion is, I believe the health and the wealth of our society is truly contingent upon the health and the wealth um, of our mindsets of those actually living in the communities. I believe it's completely impossible to have a, a healthy community if the people in it are not, are not healthy themselves. Because, you know, basically you cannot re- reproduce what you are not. So, yeah, that's, that's where my passion came from. Okay, two things to that, Trillian. This is so beautiful. And for our listeners who have reached out to me and said, Elise, I don't, how do I start looking for my purpose? How do I discover it? One of the things that I tell them is exactly just what you said. And it's the same for me too, Trillian. When we look at our own lives and we try desperately to figure out how to solve our own urgent problems, in so doing, we can get access to our purpose and help others along the way, just as you're doing. And that's what I'm doing, too. I mean, I was one of the walking dead. I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the very empty life that comes with it. And and that's a big reason that I'm doing the work that I'm doing today. So thank you for being that tremendous example. Mm-hmm, and then... Yeah. And then secondly, I just would love your perspective as a, as a professional working in this space and all these years of investigating what's going on in the world that you believe so contributes to the problems that you're trying to address, to that you're trying to improve the conditions of. Oh, I love that question. I was actually just teaching my students last night about fear. And, you know, just hearing that question, I really would say um, it's fear. If I was to boil down the, the issues, and I know that's, you know, that's pretty, pretty grandiose to, to narrow it down to one thing, but I would say the number one contributing factor is fear, and the culprit of fear is stress. And so uh, if I was to go into my, my neurological perspective for a second, um, stress triggers our fear system, which is our limbic system in our brain. Um, and it tells us that we need to either fight Whatever is, prese- whatever is presenting as a danger, or we need to run from it. Um, and, and whenever we experience a fight or flight, our brains, our ba- brains are basically telling us there is something in front of you, real or perceived. So when I say in front of you, it doesn't even mean you are looking at it. Uh, you, can, you can be imagining, imagining it. And so it's your brain telling you, hey, we are under attack, real or perceived. You need to fight this thing. Or you need to run from this thing. And just think about it for a minute, just from um, our own experiences. When we experience stress or when we are afraid, um, oftentimes we can find ourselves very angry, very irritated, very agitated. We can be a little bit snappy at people and even the people that we love. Um, And we can be very defensive. And so uh, in the world, I see a lot of back and forth irritation, a lot of agitation, a lot of anger going back and forth. And if you were to really look at it and dissect what is going on, I would say it's it's probably fear. Um, and if we dealt with the fear, I believe that some of the stresses that we are experiencing in the world uh, maybe would subside or maybe it would at least decrease, I potentially believe. 
What a great opening for us to have, Troy. And if you can boil it down to that, to me, what's the, the beauty of that is now you've given us access because now we can name it. Now we can get to it. Mm-hmm. If it's just a jumble and we don't know what we don't know, I don't see how we can start to work on it. So I think the simplicity of what you just gave us is beautiful. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. And and so um, oftentimes I, I think we don't we don't like to to label it as fear because we don't you know you ne- necessarily you don't want to be fearful. But our brains, our primitive brains, are wired to um, for survival's sake, and that's how our brains so that we can survive, so that we are not eaten by a bear or a lion or a tiger, whatever the case may be. Um, but even when in, in the face of somebody rejecting you, right, your brain can perceive that as a threat, or your voice is not heard. A lot of times we're seeing that now in our world, it's my voice is not heard or I'm not being seen, which then produces a trigger in our primitive brain that says, oh, my gosh, we're in danger. We need to fight back. And I think that's why we see a lot of tension in the world. Mm-hmm. And listeners, for your benefit, if you don't know this about about Dr. Small, she has a PhD in clinical counseling. So uh, she's speaking not just from a place of being educated, but also her practice. So. Um, thank you. Thank you for that. And again, I just I, I can recognize immediately in my life, Trillian, just the places where I've either gone to flight or fight. I, I get that. I understand that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the work that you do within your company called Attachment Leadership. So first, I got I think a name is all, always really interesting and important. Why do you call your company Attachment Leadership? There must be a story there. Yes, absolutely. Um, I like to be pretty intentional with the things that I do. And, um, and so Attachment Leadership basically came from Um, my own theory of practice and counseling. Um, So I am a systemic therapist, which simply means I see problems. um, Even if an individual is standing in front of me, I see problems from a systems point of view. Mm -hmm. So we thrive, we thrive based on the health of our connections with other people and attachment. Basically the whole, the whole theory of attachment or connection. You can use that word as well. Um, it was founded by a gentleman named John Bowlby uh, way back in the 1916, or 1960s. Rather, um, he was a pioneering psychoanalyst, um, and he basically really helped us to see the the basic need that we had was to attach to our primary caregiver. And at the time, it was just basically having that primary connection with your mother. Yes, fathers are important, but in their studies, they focused on the mother-to-child relationship. And they discovered that those children who had a healthy attachment with their mothers naturally grew to be healthy adults, emotionally, mentally, relationally. And so attachment leadership really just came from that premise. Uh, Although there are a lot of Uh, complexities in life. I do believe when it comes to relationships, we can simplify things. And I believe we have three basic needs. Um, One is to be seen, like see me whenever I'm talking, right? You want to be like, when you're talking to somebody, you want them to look, look at you. It's don't be, don't look off to the far left. Don't look off to the far right. Gaze at gaze in my eyes while I'm speaking with you. That lets me know that you see me and that you're present with me. Um, The second one is to hear me. Like, let me know that my, my voice didn't fall on a deaf ear. Let, let me know that my voice matters to you and the, that you are attentive to it and that you plan on doing uh, something with the words that I have said to you. So that's the second one. Hear them. And then the third one is to connect or to be attached to a person. And we all have a need to have a sense of belonging. Even though the most introverted person still has the innate need 
to be connected to a person. And so I said, hey, what would it be like? Not if you're not if the employer became the mother or the father. That's not what I'm saying. It's simply take these basic primitive needs, which is to be attached to another individual in a healthy way. Take those primitive needs and utilize them um, to help to help create a cohesive atmosphere at work. So it's, are you seeing your employees? Like, do, do you even know their love language? Do they need words of affirmation? I was working with one company and one of the um, issues that the employees were having was they said, our boss doesn't, you know, applaud us enough. Now, they, and they weren't even asking for, you know, praise because I showed up early. Of course, that's expected. But it's when they did, when I did a, a job well done, they said he, he didn't say, wow, that was great. And basically what she was saying was, my love language is words of affirmation. Now, had he known that, um, he would have said, hey, Susie, that's not her name, but hey, Susie, wow, like you did a great job on this project. I'm proud of you. And she would have been happy and she would have went on to the next project. But because he didn't meet her where she, uh, where he didn't meet her needs, uh, she then felt like he didn't see her. She felt he didn't hear her. She, she didn't feel connected with him. Um, so, yes, it's just using those basic attachment principles and leading from the inside out. Mm. So that's, that's where attachment leadership came from. Works beautifully for me. I love it. I'm aligned. I love it. <laughs> okay. We have a couple of minutes before the break here, and I want to just hit this whole change realm. I know we could talk a long time about change. It's so important. But uh, two questions. Why is change so hard for us to deal with? And how do you help people better handle change? Yes, yes, wonderful question. So um, change in and of itself is not necessarily what makes it hard. Um, It's really just the perspective that the person has um, when experiencing the change. So it all depends on if the change was planned or if it was unplanned. Um, And it depends on if the change was positive or negative. So, for example, um, if a, a husband and wife have been expecting and they've been, you know, anticipating and planning for a child and then she's she becomes pregnant that is a change. A new child is a complete change. It may be stressful in the sense that, okay, well, we need to get everything in order, but they were, they were prepared for it. They planned for it. They were anticipating it. Therefore, that change is not stressful. Now, on the other hand, if you have a 13-year-old who just got pregnant and, and she doesn't know who the father is, or maybe she does, but she's still 13, that can be a stressful uh, situation. So it's the exact same thing. Two people are pregnant. Um, one is stressful and one is excited. Um, so it really all depends on the, the person's perspective. And then change, change naturally throws us off balance, regardless if it's a positive or a negative. Um, it, it throws us off balance because sometimes we cannot anticipate change. Um, but, but one time I, I asked my students, I said, well, would you prefer um, to have change and you know that change is about to happen? And of course, everybody said, yes, I, give me a warning that change is about to happen. And then I said, okay, great. Well, what if your boyfriend or girlfriend says, calls you up, says, hey, I'm going to break up with you, but next week? They're like, well, no, I wouldn't like that. And I said, well, it's change that you can anticipate. <laughs> but if, so when we think, okay, I want to be pre-warned about change, um, this is what basically we are saying is we just want a sense of control. So mm-hmm. when things change, when things change and we don't, we are unaware of it or they change and we don't want them to. We have a a sense of I am no longer in control, which takes us back to our brain. Our brains are completely social. That's why I keep circling it back to that. Our brains are wired again for protection. So when we are off balance and we cannot control, our brains then think we are in danger again. So whenever your brain thinks you're in danger, you either fight the change or you run from the change. 
So a relationship that should have ended two years ago or three years ago, four years ago, you stay with it. You fight the change because you don't want the change because you're used to um, what you've experienced. But it's difficult to let go because when you let go, maybe you feel like part of you is going to leave as well. That'll be a more of a change in a relationship setting. But really, the, the biggest thing I would say is it, it's helping yourself see change from not necessarily a positive perspective, but it's strengthening your brain. We call this psychological hardiness. If you can perceive change as, oh, wow, this is a chance for me to grow, right? Instead of, oh, my gosh, this is a burden. Uh, then you're more likely to adapt a little bit better to the change that you have just experienced. Mm-hmm. I totally get that, framing it. Mm-hmm. Great way to send us into our first break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Trillian Small. She's the CEO of Attachment Leadership, a counseling, consulting, and coaching company providing customized wellness and leadership development programs, emotional intelligence, corporate training, and youth development curriculum. She is also the founder of Prepare Academy, which has a primary initiative focus on mental health and restorative juvenile justice. She's the author of five books as well and joins us today from Dallas, Texas. We've been talking a bit about how she got into this space and a bit about handling change. After the break, we're going to get into how to, how to address emotional intelligence and looking for stress and anxiety in the workplace. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Trillian Small, the CEO of Attachment Leadership, a counseling, consulting, and coaching company providing customized wellness and leadership development programs, emotional intelligence, corporate training, and youth development curriculum. She's also the founder of Prepare Academy, which has a primary initiative focus of mental health and restorative juvenile justice. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So for this next segment here, Trillian, wanted to focus on emotional intelligence and stress and anxiety in the workplace. And we were giggling about that over at the break, saying, who has that? Who knows what that is? And and so exactly. I, I'm really interested. In fact, I'll just share with you openly, you and all the listeners who might be hearing this, I do have it on my docket to work on and increase my my own emotional intelligence this year. That's one of the things that I'm um, riveted on. So you do a lot of work in that space to help people in that in that realm. So tell us, as individuals listening, what are a few things we can do right now to start addressing and increasing our emotional intelligence? Um, well, the first thing that I usually like to help people um, understand when it comes to emotional intelligence is you have to have a pretty clear understanding of who you are first, you know, before you can even focus on having social intelligence and relationship intelligence. It's, well, what about yourself? I believe for whatever reason, uh, sometimes we are the first people that we neglect and, you know, rightfully so sometimes we, we are caregivers. So we're so used to pouring into other people 
and then neglecting ourselves. And so to, in, in order to increase your emotional intelligence, I would say the first step really is um, to increase your own self-awareness. And yes, of course, you can you know, focus on your body and how your emotions are making you feel. Some people are actually not even aware of that. It's um, where does your anxiety, like we were talking about over the break, where does your anxiety live? And when I asked that question, people were like, I don't know, like, what does that mean? I was like, I said, when you, when you have anxiety, where does anxiety live in your body? But then after they slow down long enough, they realize, like, oh my gosh, my anxiety is in my chest. I'm like, yes, that's where it is. Or some people, they may say it's in my stomach. Where's your anger? Oh my gosh, my anger or my tension. It's always in my shoulders. But sometimes we don't realize that. So we just think, oh my gosh, I always have, you know, this, this butterfly feeling or my jaws are always tense. That's just how they are. No, just your emotions acting out in your body. And if you become aware of your body and where your emotions are living, you can actually, I don't want to use the word control, but you can, you can become more aware of your emotions and how they are impacting uh, your mindset and your mood throughout the day. Uh, but sometimes we wait until the day has come to a close and we're like, why do I feel? <laughs> but at two o'clock, your stomach was telling you you're anxious. Something just happened. Pay attention. What just happened and tend to it rather than waiting until 10 o'clock at night and now you're uh, overly anxious or you're overly hypervigilant. Um, but yes, yeah, self-awareness, paying attention to your body and where your emotions live because they will tell you before your brain actually tells you what is going on. Um, but also it's paying attention and, and taking time to look yourself in the mirror and say, what are my stories and how have my experiences shaped the person that I am today? Um, when we don't do that, we, uh, we just think, well, this is just how I am. Um, but honestly, the person that we are is simply just a, a compilation. It's a repository of all of our experiences balled up to, all together, and poof, that became you. But we don't understand who we are because sometimes it's difficult for us to look in the mirror and say, wow, this experience happened, and that's why I don't trust. Or this situation happened, and this is why I'm fearful of feedback, right? And this situation happened uh, when I was six, and this is why I'm I'm fearful of being around a certain type of person. I was working with a young lady in uh, corporate America. She was doing well off financially, so she wasn't coming to me because of that stress. Um, but she said, she was 35 at the time, and she said, every time I get feedback from my boss, I, I almost have a panic attack, and I have no idea why. It's impacting my work. Please help me. And so we sat down. We did a few sessions. And essentially, long story short, it boiled down to she was five years old and she drew a stick figure and her father bought it up and said, that's not how you draw a stick figure. And so from five until 35, she had been uh, struggling with this idea of, oh, my gosh, when I get feedback, that means I've done something wrong. And that's mm -hmm. why she always had a panic attack. She had to go into her boss's office and she couldn't understand. It. So in increasing her emotional intelligence, it was simply become aware of you're anxious for a reason. You're fearful for a reason. It's slowing down and asking why. Self-awareness really is just sitting yourself down, looking yourself in the mirror and saying, why? Why do I do this? Why do I do that? And why do I feel this way about X, Y, and Z? And I would think, you know, once you examine that and then looking at, well, how's that working for me? You know, the way I'm responding <laughs> yeah. to things, how's that working for me? Is this exactly. producing the results that I want or isn't it? And if it isn't, hmm, maybe I need to be able to look at this situation differently or understand at least what does set me off. Exactly. And sometimes we, um, and I, I hear it all the time, so I understand, uh, but they say, well, I don't want to look at it because what if I, what if I get overwhelmed by it? And I'm like, that makes complete sense. 
And guess what? It, it might feel emotionally overwhelming if you've never looked at it, but it's not going to overtake you. And this is a little gruesome sometimes, but I tell my clients, it's just like vomiting, right? Like when you hold that stuff in, <laughs> it doesn't feel good. But the moment you let it out, you're like, whew, glad I got that out. Uh, and so, so that's what it's like kind of sitting there and dealing with your stuff and then, you know, eventually letting it out. And then eventually, you know, you feel, you feel great about it. And your life is so much freer. It really is so much freer. Mm-hmm. I completely get that. I've done a bit of work on myself over the last several years and certainly gotten a, a more insight into myself and my own triggers, et cetera, and, you know, how I'm responding to things and whether or not, and part of the reason I'm doing the work that I'm doing this year in emotional intelligence is because I don't like the way that I responded. It hasn't worked mm-hmm. for me. So yeah. we're going we're to work on that. Um, so, you know, it's an ongoing journey, this thing called being human, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's an ongoing I, I, project. <laughs> I, I am on that journey forever. And sometimes I get frustrated because I, I haven't arrived. And then I ask myself, Trillian, like, what, what makes you think you have, you were going to arrive? You're not dead yet, so you're right. not going to arrive. That's right, you exactly. You don't want to arrive because you, that means you're not growing. And that's right. I don't want to be I, – I, I equate arriving to being six feet under, so I'm, I'm okay with not arriving. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, Me too. <laughs> so, so let's take this one step further. I was thinking about this before we got on air. You know, we all have heard – ourselves or others say, you know, that guy or that gal just pushes my buttons, you know, mm-hmm. like that person over there or that, you know, whatever. So I want to talk a little bit about triggers and some of the some of the work that you do inside organizations to help teams start to address emotional intelligence, triggers and things like that. So talk to us a bit about that work and how you go about it. Yes. Yeah, so whenever I um, help people understand triggers in particular, it's just something like you said, it's just something that pushes your button and it it will it'll uh, render a response regardless of who's pushing the button that button will always render the exact same response and so um, I tell people a trigger uh, renders five different spokes if you will I call them bestie b-e-s-t-i um, the b stands for anytime that trigger whatever button that is so it's um, somebody cuts you off while you're speaking, right? Because some people, that can be a trigger for them. It's do not cut me off while I'm talking. Um, so that the B, whenever that button is pushed, it's somebody cut me off in a meeting while I was talking. The B is the behaviors. It's what behaviors do you always have when somebody cuts you off when speaking? So it mm. may be, you, you may become silent, right? You may be like, well, pff, there goes my voice. Nobody heard me. Or you may become very defensive, right? It can be different for everybody. So what's your behavior? That's B of bestie. And the E is the emotions. Every time that button is pushed, what emotion comes up? And you may, you know, you may become uh, apathetic. You may be like, whatever, I don't care. Or you may may fall into pity of whom, woe is me, nobody ever hears me. Um, You may become, you know, overly angry as well. Um, so that's emotions. And then it's sensations. That's the body sen- sensations. When that button is pressed, what sensations do you feel in your body? It's, oh, my God, my jaws are clenching. So now I can't even talk because I'm so mad because my jaws are tight. My, my jaws are tight. Um, so it'll be sensations. And then it's thoughts. What, come, what thoughts come up every single time that one button is pressed? And, you know, we've kind of went over some of those thoughts is, oh, that person is a jerk or I'm not good enough. My voice is not powerful enough whatever thoughts may come up. And then the last one is I, it's the images. What images come up every single time that button is pressed? And it may be an image of you feeling like you're about to get fired now or whatever the case may be. But sometimes people don't realize, they think it's just, 
Well, no, it's just it's just Billy. Every time he cuts me off, that's why I feel this way. Well, it's no. Anytime somebody pushes that button, you get all of Bessie, B-S-T-I. You get all of those, and they come up. Um, what I've seen with, with corporations, and I love working in groups because I'm very observant. Um, I do a lot of self-reports. So it's, yes, tell me, you know, tell me what your triggers are. Tell me what so-and-so is doing, and tell me what's working, what's not working. But I love just getting in the atmosphere and watching because you could tell me one thing, and, but I may see something completely different. And so uh, one time I was working with the corporation and they came in, well, they came in my office, it was a team of like five people. And, you know, they, they were like, yeah, you know, well, this is our problem. This is our problem. This is our problem. I'm like, you know, listening. Great. <laughs> but I'm also paying attention to what they're not saying by when I ask a question, I pay attention to the facial expressions, right? I pay attention to the body expressions of another person. And I was working with one team in particular, and there was one guy, he did not want to come because <laughs> he was like, how are you going to help us? You can't tell me anything. And I'm like, you know, I, I was not defensive whatsoever. You know, I wasn't pushing. And, but I noticed uh, he was that aggressive type uh, because there was another team member um, always overrid his voice so that's why he always had to be the bigger voice and I didn't go as deep because he was in his a team and I didn't feel his team was emotionally ready to handle his tears because he was about to cry and I asked him a simple question of who didn't hear you as a child and his eyes watered up and then I, I then I diverted back to the team because I knew they were not ready to handle and support because he needed support at the time they couldn't give it so I quickly provided him with the support and quickly diverted because I didn't want to then uh, recreate that trauma for him if they didn't listen. But the same man that came in very defensive, like, you can't tell me anything, left out, shook my hand, gave me a hug. He was like, this was actually great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, great. Thank you. Uh, but that, that, is, that is the work that I do with emotional intelligence. It's really just helping you become aware of your own story, helping the team become aware of their own story. And I even interjected myself when I noticed the one lady was always overpowering his voice. I interjected because it was actually irritating me. So I paid attention to my own emotions, but it wasn't my emotions. So I knew it was the projection of the emotions in the room. Uh, so that's why it's important as a leader to also be able to differentiate, is this my stuff, my emotions, or is this you all's stuff that I'm now feeling? Mm -hmm. And every time she cut him off, uh, I was getting agitated. And I knew it wasn't, I mean, I'm not going to work with you tomorrow. So I, it didn't bother me. And I knew that was his feeling. And so I stopped while she cut him off. And I said, you know, every time you cut him off, I get agitated. And so I turned to him and I say, is that how you feel when she does that? And he said, oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it, but I was a voice for him because he wasn't speaking his voice. Mm -hmm. uh, so that so that's really just the work of of EQ when it comes to working with corporations. It's really helping them see their own um, their own um, th their own instances that are coming out in the room. Um, but then also helping the team see how they are influencing the entire team as well. Mm -hmm. All right. The mirroring and such and bringing things to the surface. So, so, so powerful. I'd love to see you in action, Trillian. Would love to see that. So I have another question I want to ask you about um, ang anxiety and stress, but let me do it after the break so you can answer it more fully. Let's grab our last break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Trillian Small. She's the CEO of Attachment Leadership, a counseling, consulting, and coaching company providing customized wellness and leadership development 
programs, emotional intelligence, corporate training, and youth development curriculum. She's also the founder of Prepare Academy, which has the primary initiative focus of mental health and restorative juvenile justice. She joins us today from Dallas, Texas. After the break, we're going to hear a little bit more about that anxiety and stress that we talked about, as well as her work in juvenile justice and her nonprofit. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. If you're just tuning in, my guest is Dr. Trillian Small. She's the CEO of Attachment Leadership, a counseling, consulting, and coaching company providing customized wellness and leadership development programs, emotional intelligence corporate training, and youth development curriculum. She's also the founder of Prepare Academy, which has a primary initiative focus on mental health and restorative juvenile justice. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. So we didn't quite get to this last question in that group that I wanted to ask you, Trillian, here. And I know for a lot of our listeners, they would want to hear about this. So just briefly, if you could talk with us about the work that you do within companies to help them recognize the signs of when their employees are anxious and stressed, how do you help companies in this area? Yes. So um, one of the things I, I really just do is, is I just call it a psychoeducation or a trauma-informed training um, to really provide uh, employers and as well as their employees, because it's not just enough for the employers um, to know how to spot anxiety or depression or, or, or other mental health disorders, it's also important for the person themselves to be able to realize, oh, wow, I'm anxious, I'm depressed. Um, because sometimes it can become so normal. Um, a person can uh, adapt to working under stress so much that they do not realize that they are um, stressed out and they do not realize um, that the, their agitation is actually depression. Because you think, well, no, I'm just frustrated. Um, But anxiety or depression can also show itself in irritation as well. And so I like to help companies to understand the mental health culture, if you will, of their um, of their company. Sometimes you can I don't know if you've ever walked in, maybe not even a company, but just into a store, maybe even, you know, driven into a city and you just you begin to feel a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it's like, wow, like I drove into this city and I feel excited and I'm ready to go. And then I drove into another city and I'm like, oh, my God, I feel depressed and it can be sunny outside. And so it's really it's picking up on the atmosphere of whatever environment that you are in. And so um, I like to tell employers, I mean, some basic things to really look for. It's uh, do your employees dread coming to work? <laughs> like that's that's a, a basic sign that there's <laughs> there may be something unhealthy about your culture at work right (laughs) because it was a little bit healthier maybe they would want to come to work um so do they dread coming to work um do they do you have a lot of employees who 
are finding themselves um, always in isolation or, or avoiding other people, avoiding you. Um, and I'm, I'm not talking about just those who are naturally introverted and they prefer just to stay in their own space. Uh, I'm, I'm talking about those who, and that's fine, but what about those who are naturally outgoing, but now they have you have found them a little bit more recluse? Um, that's, a, that's a change in their behaviors. And so back to what we were talking about of emotional intelligence, um, the second part of emotional intelligence is self-first, but it's also other awareness. Um, do you have the ability to pick up on how somebody else is feeling? And you have to be very in tune um, as a leader to recognize that. So they, uh, they're dreading coming, um, they're isolating, they're avoiding. Are they tearful, right? Are they tearful? You Do you notice that they... Uh, typically are upbeat, but now they look sad. Um, honestly, it's really just picking up on their changes in their mood. And it's not just, oh, well, she's a woman, she's on her period. Uh, it's not just that, it's you have to go, you have to put in a little bit more effort to ask yourself, but why is she moody, mm-hmm. right? Or why is, why is he moody? Don't just say, oh, she's just, you know, and it's her woman time or whatever the case may be. It, it, it sometimes it goes beyond that. Don't ask, Hey, are you on your period today? That would definitely be out of, out of order. Uh, but it's just taking a, a leader has to become a little bit more knowledgeable. And really all I do is just provide them with a, Hey, this is what anxiety is. These are some symptoms. This is what depression is symptoms. Um, this is what a person who experiences trauma may look like. Uh, but then again, even beyond that, I don't like to just leave it there and say, well, these are the symptoms, because if you are a person like me, uh, you didn't exhibit any of those symptoms externally. So nobody ever knew. <laughs> nobody knew I was depressed. Nobody knew I was anxious. Nobody knew I was struggling with PTSD because I covered up pretty well. I, I was what they call high functioning. So I wasn't sitting at home crying in the bed. So you, while you may have some clients who are coming to work and they're staying after hours, begin to even pay attention to those because I was a maladaptive perfectionist. And on the outside, people say, oh, wow, you accomplished so much. But they don't realize that it was an, it was an unhealthy striving. So it's even looking at those who are overachieving to the point where it may be causing stress in their own lives, or maybe they are overachieving because they are trying to overcompensate. So it's kind of making sure you're not neglecting both ends of the spectrum. Oh, that's just incredibly accessible for us. And just for for the listeners to really understand, part of the reason I ask her that question, ask Trillian that question, is because when we start to understand how anxiety and stress shows up in the workplace, and we can start to address it, now we can start to impact engagement performance, retention, and, you know, days off the job. And so that's that's real meaningful bottom line contribution, not just the care and feeding of your employees, but the bottom line of your the, your company's results. That's why I wanted Trillian to, to speak to that. So thank you, Trillian. That was, that was great. That was really great. Because I think we get to a place sometimes where we just start to accept that this is the normal around here, you know? <laughs> right. And eventually once the bottom falls out, now they really have to take off work when you could have just been a little bit more preventative in the front end, right? Yes. And like you said, it's you can retain clients a little bit more. I've seen so many where clients have quit because of the stress of the environment. And it's not just the workload, um, but it's the inattentiveness to their mental health needs early on. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and people will say, it's just not worth it here, right? You hear them saying Mm -hmm. that on the way. It's just not worth it here. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, we're getting close already out of time here. I want to talk about your your nonprofit here. You started yours when I did mine. Mine's Purpose on Fire. I started mine in December of 2018, like you did yours. Yours is called, right? We were on the same wavelength. 
I'm telling you, Trillian, I'm telling you, <laughs> this energy thing is real. I uh, love it. <laughs> so you started Prepare Academy, and I know your mission is to prepare, not repair our youth by equipping them mentally, emotionally, and relationally through evidence-based practices. And you're out to put an end to the cycle of trauma and to stop preventable men- mental illnesses from reoccurring generation after generation. So first, I got to understand where did that, that idea come from and what has you so motivated to address this problem? Yes. Yeah, so I, I named it Prepare Academy. Um, really just inspired by my clients. Um, just about uh, every one of my clients who come in, uh, when we do a, a trauma history timeline, we could, couldn't, we could always connect something in their present to something in their past. And so, you know, I always have the question of, wow, what would have happened if their mother saw this when they were five or if their counselor dealt with this or their teacher caught this when they were 10? What would, how would their life be different? You know, if instead of living 40 years this way, what if, what would happen? And so I said, I'm going to call this Prepare Academy because, you know, a great, yes, it's great to have, but I want to focus on preparing um, our children and, and Prepare Academy primarily focuses on at-risk youth. It's overall youth development. Um, yes, we have a, a a restorative juvenile justice um, wing to it, an initiative. But it's overall, how can we uh, take the youth that we know are um, have a, a sensitivity or a vulnerability to encountering trauma and, 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 and more stress and maybe even encountering the juvenile justice system? What can we do now? Right. So it's helping them increase their emotional intelligence. It's teaching them social, um, uh, how to interact in social environments. Um, it's teaching them how or it's helping them to heal from the current trauma. You can imagine some of these kids, they may be 10, you know, 10, 11, 12, and have already, um, you know, occurred so much amount of stress in their few years of life. So it's, let's go ahead and nip it in the butt now. And one of my inspiring quotes comes from Frederick Douglass. um, And he says, it is easier to build strong, a strong child than it is to repair broken men. And that's really where the foundation for Prepare Academy comes from. I love it. Love it. Love it. I'm a fan. Okay. All right. A couple more things here real quick before we get to the end of the show here. So one of the things that you told me on the phone when we got acquainted was you're out to cut incarceration by half. And that is a big problem, as you say, for our brown and black brothers and sisters. So I want to understand the gravity and breadth of the problem here. Help us paint that picture for us. Yes, absolutely. So um, I, my organization just recently partnered with um, a national organization called Cut 50. Um, if you know Van Jones, he is a CNN commentator. Um, he's also the CEO and the founder of Reform. And so uh, their initiative is, just as you've said, to cut incarceration in half. Um, and I've joined forces with them and said, yes, I want to do something about this. Um, so to give you a couple of statistics, um, like, like you said, blacks and browns are disproportionately incarcerated at alarming rates. Um, almost one of 10 or one of 12 rather black men aged 25 to 54 in jail or in prison compared to one in 60 non-black men. So that is 600,000 African-American men an imprisonment rate of five times that of white men. So those are our browns and our blacks. Um, wow. Right. And so um, one may say, OK, well, well, maybe it's just the blacks and the browns that are committing all the crime. No, that's actually not the case either. If we were to take in racial profiling, right, if we were to take in um, the school to prison pipeline, if we were to take in um, and I can explain that. But if we were to take in uh, the police encounter with civilians, um, we've seen so many who will simply uh, patrol the areas where they know blacks and browns and poor people are and they arrest. And there are so many many poor people uh, as well in, in prison in, or in jail. And guess what? 
gel does not, it doesn't help anybody. That actually can make them very worse. Um, and so with Cut50, the national organization, um, while we all focus on mass incarceration, my passion in particular um, is focusing on juvenile. So I, I focus on uh, restorative juvenile justice. And, and as I said uh, briefly, our goal is to uh, eradicate, if you will, the school to prison pipeline. And so that's a metaphor. It's not like an actual pipeline you're sending a child through, but it's a metaphor of saying uh, from you many of these children who encounter this system were first referred by us by a school so it's well they got into a fight so they call the police instead of them handling at the school they'll call the police but now the child it has entered into this system and the moment they enter in the system it's very difficult for many of them um, to not continue that path into prison and, and sadly a, a, a lot of our money is going to incarcerating rather than restoring and educating our youth so some, some more numbers this was back in I think 2011 but the numbers are, are probably still the same but I've seen uh, I've seen some prisons spend fifty to ninety thousand dollars fifty to ninety thousand dollars to incarcerate one juvenile but the educational system may spend nine to twelve thousand dollars educating them like that I'm like wow you're, you're investing more money and throwing kids in prison and the moment they get back into the community they are probably going to um, recommit a, another crime so now the community is in danger so you're not actually effectively restoring or transforming these children's lives there was also another article it was called prison Princeton is a prison Princeton article um, that said it costs more to incarcerate a kid than to send them to Princeton for one year so uh. when you think when you think about those numbers you you ask yourself why and now now if uh, from a moral standpoint if that doesn't trigger your heart it's well from a fiscal standpoint the people paying for it is you taxpayers mm -hmm. are, are paying for for to send kids to prison and so it's mm -hmm. well wow like why why continue to invest our money where we are getting no return on our investment oh my but gosh trillion that is that yeah, is, let me tell you I, I mean that is that's astounding and I I, I I I totally got the point I don't want to make sure and give you the last little bit of time here to talk about this big cool day you have coming up here oh, on March yes. 5th, Day of Empathy, March 5th, 2019. I know you're leading this day and event. Before we, we have to get off air, tell us just a smidge about what you're up to and why it's important. What results are you looking for? Yeah, so everything that I just talked about with restorative juvenile justice and the school to prison pipeline, uh, we're going to extend that into a three-hour conversation on March the 5th, 2019 here in Dallas, Texas at a location called Capital Factory. Um, if you go to uh, dayofempathy.event or, or Day of Empathy dallas.eventbrite.com you can get your tickets all of the proceeds um, for that event the tickets go straight to some of the students that will actually be there sharing their stories about how uh, being in trauma how living in poverty and how encountering the juvenile justice system has truly impacted their lives but we're not just there to you know gripe and complain about how bad the system is um, we are also focusing on bringing people in the room that can say hey but there's hope there, there are already organizations on our team who will who are talking about the restorative programs, the specialty courts will have some judges there um, talking about what they are already doing to help restore our youth and stop sending them to prison, but instead send them to college or to in the workforce. Um, but yeah, so March, March the 5th, 2019 at 6 p.m. in Dallas, Texas. Uh, tickets are just $10 and all the proceeds go straight to the students that will be there. Oh my gosh, Dr. Trillian Small, you are a 
whirlwind and I'm so grateful to know you. In say 30 seconds, what would you like to leave our listeners with? Uh, the, the one thing I would like to leave my listeners with is love truly does conquer all in any arena that you are in. And I truly do believe that love also heals. So while this event and everything we've been talking about has to do with transforming your mind so that you can transform your heart so that you can transform your relationships. Ultimately, if we find the love that we're needing, I believe we can find the healing that we're also looking for. What a great way to finish the show, Dr. Trillian Small. Thank you so very much for joining us and coming into my path. If you want to learn more about Dr. Trillian Small, her work at Attachment Leadership or Prepare Academy, visit her website at trillionsmall.com. It's just like the number and then small.com. If you missed last week's show, you can always catch a via recorded podcast. We were on the air with Rana Zia. She She was talking about her book called Your Inner Light. Now we really can create the lives we want. Very inspiring indeed. I got many things from it. Next week we'll be on the air with Dr. Cynthia Mickens-Ross talking about her numerous ventures to inspire people and encourage them to consider what their lives would look like if only they lived them actually as they were in the what if kind of place. See you there. Remember that work is at least one third of our lives so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work.